Westmount, as Jeremy mentioned, the privilege it is to sing also is to pray together. We join often in these prayers with the saints through the ages. We've done so with David, and today we'll do so with Hannah as we pray together out of 1 Samuel 2. Join me as we pray to our great God. Bow with me. Our Father in heaven, our heart exalts in you. Our horn is exalted in you. Collectively, our mouth derides, Lord, those that would be our enemies because we rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from any mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by you, our Father, actions are weighed. The boughs of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren before you, our God, has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Lord, it is you that kills, and it is you that brings to life. You bring down to Sheol, and you, our Lord, raise up. You, O Lord, make poor. You, O Lord, make rich. You, Father, bring low, and you, Father, exalt. You raise up the poor from the dust. You lift the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are yours, O Lord, and on them you have set the world. You, Father, will guard the feet of your faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of you, our Lord, shall be broken to pieces. Against them you will thunder in heaven. Our great God, you will judge the ends of the earth. You will give strength to your king and exalt the horn of your anointed. Father, it is in these great promises, these great truths of who you are that we corporately confess together now. And Father, as we turn to more of your word, Lord, please open our hearts to hear from you and you alone as we look to continue to give you the worship that you and you alone are due. Amen. Westmount, take your copy of God's word and turn in it with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, is our residence this morning. Chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us this morning, another warm welcome to you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, just look in one of the racks in front of you. You'll see various copies there for you to follow along with Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm going to begin this morning by reading our passage to set our hearts on where we'll be this morning. I'm actually just going to go a verse before to set the context. Gospel of John chapter 4, verse 19. 
Look with me. The woman said to him, this is Jesus, said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I trust that many of you here today are familiar with the term, the worship wars. You've heard that term before. The worship wars was a term given to the dust-up that happened in the church about a generation ago. Starting in the 70s, cresting in the 80s, overflowing into the 90s with ripples still today. The worship wars were not a set of disagreements about if we should sing. And to be clear, the term worship wars is kind of a misnomer. We've learned in our study, what about worship? Worship's all of life. Singing is just one dimension of our worship. But that was the term given to these musical wars. Again, the worship wars were not a set of disagreements about if we should sing. No, the presence of singing in church is simply, beloved, not in debate. Because in Scripture, it's not in debate. First Chronicles 16.9, sing to the Lord, sing praises to Him. Psalm 95 opens with this exhortation, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Psalm 96, the very next psalm, similarly begins, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name. Of course, in the Psalms, we could add many more, that was just a sample, many more calls for God's people to sing. In the New Testament, it's no different. Here, the command, you find it in Ephesians 5.19, to the church, is this to address one another in what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. <clears throat> James 5.13, as a blessed response, God's word simply says this, sing praise. Yes, there's no debate about whether we are called to sing. God says sing, and that's not what we're looking at today. What then are the worship wars about? Well, it's about the what, and it's about the how. Sing, yes, but what do we sing? Sing, yes, but how do we sing? As much as that worship war felt new for that generation, in reality, beloved, in reality, it was nothing really new. <clears throat> in truth, the church has always warred around musical worship. I want you to consider this excerpt from a U.S. newspaper commenting on church music styles. Just listen to it. I quote directly. There are several reasons for opposing, this would be new worship, 
new musical worship. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there's so many songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. The new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. It's a money-making scheme, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like something you might hear today. Well, that was written in 1723. And it was by a pastor who was attacking Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts, of course, has famously given us, When I survey joy to the world, and I sing the mighty power of God. Beautiful, beautiful songs. Those hymn writers back then endured their own worship wars. Do you see that? They endured the same thing. It's no different. There's nothing new under the sun. Further back, if you were to go centuries back to the 16th century, at the time of the Reformation, it was the same by two men you know very well, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Martin Luther said, we write hymns, we sing those spiritual songs, and of course he wrote one of the beautiful hymns of the faith, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. John Calvin believed that only the psalms and metrical rhythms should be sung, wanting to honor the very word of God, and he said, we sing it. We sing it. Both men love the Lord and wanting to do what's right. Well, that worship war continued between the followers of Luther and Calvin. It just went on. What do we sing? What do we sing? Prior to that, if you were to go further back, you'd be in the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, and of course the war was over, Gregorian chant. Gregorian chant. This new singing in the Middle Ages became so popular, it rose to become eventually the official music of the church. Can you imagine? Gregorian chant. Yet many didn't like the monophonic, unaccompanied singing. Interestingly, when octave ranges and harmony were added later, a war erupted. Yes, church, we the church have always found ways to make war over music in the church. And I want to be upfront with you this morning. I don't think that's going to change. It's just not going to change. It's not pessimism, that's realism. Disagreements on styles and preferences will never die, listen to me, this side of heaven. Because we're all different, praise God. And I could say much more at this point. You would normally insert a comment, maybe a little sermonette about preferences and bearing with others. And that's for another time. And that's certainly another message that we bear with one another's differences. But that's not today. Preference is not the point of this passage today. There are some aspects of worship that are not matters of style and are not matters of preference. I pray that will be clear by the time we're done today. Today, the musical worship of this era of right now faces a much deeper war. And unlike the worship wars, what the church should or shouldn't do is clearer. Today, in fact, it is indeed a matter of what constitutes true worship. Today, the church faces a worship threat that is older than the church age. Beloved, that is what we will look at as we continue our worship series this morning. As now we call our attention to John chapter 4. 
By way of introduction, as we are now going to jump into this text, into this gospel here, Jesus is en route to Galilee. He's in the south. He wants to go north to Galilee, but he wants to take the unconventional route for the Jew anyway to go directly through Samaria. He's taking the straightest distance, which would make sense by all other measures. The only problem is for the Jew that was going through Samaria, and they hated the Samaritans. So generally, they would take coastal routes. They would take any route to get away from Samaria, but not Christ on this day in John 4. There's a mission, there's teaching, and he goes directly into the heartland of Samaria. And the reasons why the Jews hated the Samaritans need to be noted as we begin this text. The origins of the Samaritans are recorded in 2 Kings 17. The Assyrians populated that northern region at the time. Remember, the Assyrians brought in those of their own from other cities to populate the north. And the thing is, there were still Jews, for whatever reason, hiding in caves, maybe the impoverished of the land that stayed in that land. So they were there together, together. And the Jews that remained in that land intermixed, intermarried with the migrated Assyrians. And that's a choice that to the ethnic Jew would have been forbidden. Remember, we, we looked at the Mosaic Law. It was strictly forbidden to do that because God's people were a set-apart people. And remember, it wasn't just because. This had nothing to do with ethnic preference. This is a matter of if you do that, what will happen? Those people will take you away from our Lord. Well, that's exactly what happened to the Samaritans. Hence, as the southern Jews, the Orthodox Jews looked on, they despised them. Why? Because the Samaritans were a people formed in compromise and disobedience. In the eyes of the pure-blooded southern Jews, those who remained in north actually lost their right to be considered God's people, Jews at all, and they forfeited their heritage because they compromised, compromised with the world. Of course, it wasn't just disobedience to God's marriage laws that did that. The Samaritans had abandoned God's instruction long before in many other ways. Even before the Assyrian invasion, 1 Kings 12 records Jeroboam making the high places and appointing priests that were not Levites, just doing what he wanted to do, worshiping the way that he wants to worship a man-made religion, and a man-made worship. And in time, the Samaritans eventually made their own temple in the north. It was on another mountain. It was Mount Gerizim in the heart of Samaria, a rival mountain, hence a rival temple. A new place, a fresh place of worship, proposed by those still claiming to be God's people and worshiping God. By the time now Jesus arrives here in chapter 4 in Samaria, the worship war is fierce. Now that's the setting we're about to drop into, but one final opening note. Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman here in Samaria drawing well water. Many of you know her as the woman at the well, right? It's because this is a very famous interchange between these two. And it's after an exchange <coughs> where Jesus offers living water, and a call to repentance. That's the tone of this passage. That is why Jesus has come here. He is calling her out of darkness 
He is presenting living water. He is the living water. Because the woman is an adulteress with many husbands. And plus, on top of that, as Jesus tells her, you're living with another man right now. After that, and like is often the case, when one is confronted with their sin, does this refrain look familiar? When it's right there, the God-man says you are in sin, what does she do? She changes the subject. Enough of personal things. What of public things? Enough of personal holiness. What of public worship? Yes, let's talk about that. And that subject change is where we pick it up. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's coming right after Jesus in his omni-knowledge, uh, his all-knowing uh, deity, calls out the fact that she is in sin. She says, Well, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You see the gear shift there? Let's talk about something else. This woman has questions now about worship, questions that reveal a lack of understanding. And that brings us to our first point this morning, the first dimension of true worship, and it's this, the misunderstanding of true worship. The misunderstanding of true worship. The Samaritan woman appeals to what's familiar. Do you see that? What does she tell Jesus? She goes to the familiar. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Of course, they're in Samaria. Overlooking this well would have been Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim, so they're right in the setting. In other words, here, this, this is what we've always done, and this, Jesus, is what I know. Even more, she felt like she was on sacred ground. Look at verse 11. Scroll back up to verse 11. She feels she's on sacred ground. It says here earlier in the account, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. That's the account from Genesis 33, where Jacob's in the land, and from the sons of Hamor, he buys this land and gives it to his family. He's providing for his family. In other words, are you going to mess with a patriarch? Who bought this land, he gave it to us. She looks at Jesus and, in other words, is saying, this is sacred ground. We're worshiping on sacred ground. We know that argument. Tradition, knowledge, location. Here it is. All powerful arguments for true worship. Is that not right? Those are the pillars of the arguments often. Tradition, knowledge, location. One might say, this lady had a point. Maybe this Samaritan needed to be heard. Well, to that, we consider Jesus' response. Back to verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Why? For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus lands conclusively on this one. I want us to see this. There is no gray area. He lands conclusively on this one. He says, salvation is from the Jews. In other words, not only true worship, but true salvation is from the Jews. <clears throat> that means you're not only under a false system of worship, but Samaritan, you have a false sense of security. You see that? 
There is no Messiah coming from Samaria. None. Now, if we were going through the Gospel of John verse by verse, we, of course, would stop here and in depth talk about salvation in Christ alone. And Jesus, in this passage, has so much to say about salvation through the Jews, through him. We've talked already about his discourse on the living water, uh, welling up to eternal life, verse 14. And then later we see others saved, other Samaritans coming to Jesus saved, verse 41. That would be a study for another day. However, our purpose today is to hone in on these specific verses, the diversion, if you will, that she's trying to throw up where Jesus teaches. Even in the diversion, he's teaching. And he's teaching on worship. And it's a point where Jesus graciously meets her diversion and gives teaching. And here we see Jesus correct misunderstandings about true worship. Jesus says true worship is not a matter of location. Jesus says the hour is coming, which by the way, that language points us to the new covenant. There is an hour coming, a new way, not the old way, a new way, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, true worship will happen in many places, not just in one temple or on one mountain, but in many churches. That time is coming by way of what we looked at last week, corporate worship, corporate worship. And true worship will happen not just Sunday mornings, but all day, every day by way of what we looked at two weeks ago, which was whole life worship, whole life worship. Jesus says true worship is not just a matter of knowledge. In fact, Jesus says, look at it, it is possible to worship something with wrong knowledge. That's sobering. It's possible to worship something and have the wrong knowledge. Jesus says, look at verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. That's nothing short of scary. In other words, true worship means there's a mental, intellectual, and knowledgeable understanding. True worship is worshiping according to knowledge. Here it is, not in spite of it. So often today, that's what's proposed as worship. Park your brain somewhere else and feel it. Jesus says, it matters little what your fathers did. What matters is that you think about what you're doing. Do you see that? What matters for a true worshiper is that you're mentally engaged with the act of worship. What matters is that you worship according to knowledge. That's what Jesus says. Worship according to knowledge. In church, as we consider true worship today, we also consider the questions that our Savior begs of us in a text like this. Consider what Jesus is teaching. Is your worship just a matter of being in the right place? Is that what you're thinking today, that I just need to be at church on Sunday morning to worship? Is your worship for you a matter of what you've always known? Is it inherited worship? This is you come from Christian stock and just, this is what you do. This is what our fathers did, our mothers did, and this is what I do. Is worship for you a matter of what you've always known? Whatever it would be that you know and however you acquired it, right? It's tradition. And is your worship according to knowledge or is it absent of it? These are questions that Jesus begs of all of us this morning. And beloved, as you grapple with those important questions, let's turn to the next verse that will help 
us and bring much clarity to these common misunderstandings. We've looked at the misunderstanding of true worship, now the manner of true worship, the manner of true worship. Verse 23, for the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now that statement, that's one statement from Jesus, but it contains a number, a number, a wealth of important truths. It's such a big statement in this chapter. We're going to pull it apart bit by bit. We need to to get into this, and it's going to reveal a lot to us. Jesus says, look first, the time has now come for who? True worshipers. True worshipers. Church, today many people get really worked up about the suggestion of a wrong worship or a false worship. You'll hear things said like this, stop being so picky or just let it be. Expressions like let them worship however they want to, listen to me, that sounds really good, I understand that. In fact, they are nice and friendly and have an offensive rating of zero. That's why we're prone to say that. That's what we gravitate to. We don't like confrontation and we shouldn't in a sense, but it's not us saying these things, this is Jesus saying these things. And this is not where Jesus goes here. He doesn't say, okay, well, you guys have your mountain and Mount Gerizim. Well, go ahead. Worship there. I'm good with that. Jesus does not say that. Do you see that? He corrects. He corrects. Jesus does not say that the time has come for worshipers in general. That's another point. Do you see that? He doesn't talk about worship proper in general. No, there's an adjective there. He says what? The time has come for true Worshippers, And that tells us a lot. And the fact that Jesus needs to distinguish true worship tells us what? That there's a such thing as false worship from Jesus. And again, this reality is as old as humanity itself. Let's get one more foray into the book of Leviticus. Turn with me to Leviticus 10. Leviticus 10. I want us to see that true and false worship is not just a modern thing. It's as old as God's people itself. Do you remember we've been tracking in Leviticus the first few chapters, all of those prescriptions on offerings and worship to God? Chapters 1, 2, 3, burnt offerings, peace offerings, all of it. On it goes as we open Leviticus. Specific prescriptions for how to worship. Right down to the priests. This is how you set them apart. This is how you consecrate. Specific manner of worship. All of that freshly laid for God's people. And then this in chapter 10, the newly instituted priest, Aaron and his sons, now they're going to go and offer worship. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me I will be sanctified And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Beloved, that account happens after nine chapters. We've looked at over the past two weeks of what? This is how you worship. This is what true worship is. And right out of the gate in ancient Israel, Nadab and Abihu just miss it. It cost them their life. And that was by the hands, Nadab and Abihu, the first priests who had just received a fresh giving of the law. 
They've just been set apart, consecrated. Everything is there. And again, we ask these kinds of questions because I pray it's helpful. If that false worship was true then, listen, false worship, fresh off of a, a giving of the law, so close to God's revealed word, how much more likely is false worship now when people have abandoned God's word? How much more likely is it millennia later? I would submit to you, Westmount, it's exponentially more likely that there's a lot of false worship going on. Again, this was fresh off the giving of the law. I know what you're thinking. I pray this is what you're thinking. I don't want to be there. Have you ever been there? I don't want to be Nadab and Abihu. God, am I giving you false worship? We don't want to be there, right? I know some are with me. I don't want to be there. I want to give true worship. What does that look like? How do we understand and discern the manner of true worship? What does true worship look like? Thankfully, refreshingly, Jesus tells us. Back to John 4. We just continue reading. And in John, Jesus is going to tell us. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. True worshipers, you see there, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Two very important words, spirit and truth. That is the manner of true worship as defined by Jesus. And church, this is so straightforward. We're just going to walk through it together. So straightforward. Worship in spirit there is not worship in the Holy Spirit. You say, why? That's what spirit is. This is not some special filling that you need, that you need to come to, you need to be whipped up to on a Sunday morning to worship properly. That's not what this is. No spirit, as you see there, is actually... And let's unveil the original language here. It doesn't have the article on it. Remember those of us in hermeneutics on Wednesday nights, the article is the, it's a pointer. You can say a piano, that's indefinite, or the piano. You see that? That's an article. It's pointing you to something very distinct. Well, if you look behind the language here, there is no the on the spirit. There's no the, this is indefinite. So you say, well, what does that mean? It means that it's pointing to something that is not definite, something that many may have. And it means then just what spirit, the word small s, means today. And what's that? When we refer to someone and we say their spirit is down or their spirits were lifted, it's exactly what we're talking about. But here it is. We are referring to what when we say that? The inner person. Do you see that? We're talking about something inside someone, something beyond the skin, beyond the flesh. This means we worship with the whole of our being. And this is so important. Worship in spirit means our holistic self. You see how we're tied back now to two weeks ago? All of you, this is not just the external presentation, all of you. This means we worship with our whole being. And that is more important than you think because there's a lot of external worship today. Beloved, can I tell you we're swimming in it. A lot of worship that's all flesh but nothing on the inside. A lot of worship that is all show but bankrupt on the inside. No inner spirit. One commentator puts it so well. I'll quote again directly. I quote, There are many things that go on that people think are worship, but they're not. There is a certain kind of music that makes us feel like we're worshiping because of the feel of it and because of the style of it. And it gives us a feeling of peace and maybe a few goosebumps. 
But the fact is, it may well be that the same style of music, that the same mood of music with the words that were totally without God could affect the same emotion in us. That is not worship, end quote. Beloved, this is where we're prone to get fooled. We hear a pleasing melody and note it. We don't engage mentally and internally. Have you been there? You hear the notes and the melody and all of a sudden you check your brain out. Dangerous. And even more, because our flesh is aroused, we call it worship. Beloved, it's not true worship. It's not spirit worship. If we turn our mind off, if we turn our inner being off, it's actually not true worship, says Jesus. It's worship based on the outside, on the flesh. That is what Jesus is saying here. That, yet that's not all he says. Look carefully. He says true worship is not just spiritual inner, but that of spirit and truth. Truth. Here is where our knowledge is informed. This is where we ask questions like a simple question. What am I singing? Have you been there? I remember my own sanctification. Many of you know I was saved later in life. And I love music. I still to this day. And so many of the songs I was listening to as a young believer, I would just be singing along and all of a sudden it would hit me. What in the world am I singing? And I'm telling you, I, I'm giving you my heart. I had to repent. Right? I'm like, what in the world am I singing? Because I had checked my brain out. That's a worldly sense. You just check it out and just... But we bring that into the church. We bring that into the church because that's who we are. And, and as it goes, as we conform to Christ, it happens in these walls too with church services. There are songs, Christian or worship songs, we sing. And if we're not careful, we find out that what we're singing, and listen to me, it can be professed in the name of Jesus. We can be singing something that's patently not true. Some of you know this refrain from an old hymn. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, listen, none other has ever known. What did we just sing? Church, that simply is not true. Listen, we can quibble first about experiences with Jesus in a metaphorical garden, but that's not even the thing. But to sing that you have a special claim on joy with Jesus that no one else ever has? No one's ever known to say nothing of apostles and martyrs. Listen to me. What about the joy that the Son of God had with the Father? Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that what? I had with you before the world existed. That's no garden. That's eternal fellowship between the Son and the Father. None of us can rival that. And we shouldn't be singing it. To sing that we have a greater joy with Jesus than the Trinity ever did, beloved, beloved, it's just false. It's false. That's an old example, but let me give you a new one. Consider the modern song. Many of you know what a beautiful name. Sung in churches around the world. A lovely song, right? Pleasing, very pleasing. The song has a lot of beautiful things to say about the name of Jesus, but midway through the song, if you're not paying attention, you realize you've just sung this about salvation, about the cross. You didn't want heaven without us. Listen to me, that's not only as man-centered as it gets, but listen to me, Westmount, it's just not true. The cross, the cross, the reason of the cross is because God was lonely. 
Is that what the Bible says? Why did Jesus come down and die on a cross? Let's go to the Bible for what the Bible says. Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. And why? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's why the cross. It means the cross was for God's glory, not because God was lonely. Church, when we worship, we do so in spirit and in truth. We sing internally as well as externally with words of truth. I can tell you just simply anecdotally, you ever go to those reunions and they hire some guy to put a song together for someone? My wife might have a song about Carrie or whatever it would be. How much, listen, I'll tell you as her wife, of an abomination would it be if that person stood up and started singing things about a different woman? Why do we tolerate it here? Why do we tolerate it? Yet we sing it because we say it's worship. One last comment on this point. True worship is not just a matter of accuracy. Listen to me. Accuracy can be everything. It's not just accuracy, but it's also association. You can have musicians and groups put a song together that contain words that not only hit your soul but tell the truth. We've been there at Westmount. We've sung some of those songs because they're lyrically on point and very deep and they're very good songs. The origin, origin is not. Origin is not. Consider the artist that gave us that song. What a beautiful name. And before I name them, I just want to make a comment about this. This is always uncomfortable for some, right, when names are named. But we do this because the Bible does so. We only follow along Paul. He named who? Hymenaeus. Alexander. Why? Because they were in trouble. 1 Timothy 1. Apostle John did in 3 John 9, he named Diotrephes. Why? Because Diotrephes was in trouble. What about Jesus to the churches in Revelation 2? He named specifically a group, God forbid, the Nicolaitans. He named them and he said, stay away. Over and over and over again, you see God warning and protecting his sheep. And so, we do the same. We pray in in love. What a beautiful name is by Hillsong. One of the biggest Christian music outfits in the world on this planet. They are a mega musical worship outfit. I'm pretty sure all of you know Hillsong. These songs are sung not only in churches, they're sung on radios. They're beloved by many. In the past, we at Westmount, we admit, we've sung some of their songs, some spirit true songs. Yet Hillsong, over time, has demonstrated more and more that their songs... The lyrics could be as rich as you want, but that's an anomaly. Some of their old songs may be okay lyrically, but as a group, they no longer are. Hillsong's founding pastor is Brian Houston. He wrote a book called You Need More Money. I'm not making this up. He wrote a book called You Need More Money. And it's nothing short of a different gospel, a false gospel. Page 8 of that book, he says this. Again, I'm going to quote him directly. We have to become comfortable with wealth and break the bondage, guilt, and condemnation of impoverished thinking. Poverty is definitely not God's will for his people. In fact, all his promises talk of blessing and prosperity. In the upper room, Jesus made promises, did he not? He promised the Holy Spirit, and what else did he promise? Trouble, suffering, persecution. That's wrong. Church, that's the prosperity gospel. And we learned in Galatians, it's a false gospel. Even more than that, true worshipers cannot align with a movement like Hillsong because of these reasons. 
which have become starkly alarming over the past few years. Their nuanced affirmation of homosexual behavior, a movement that holds Roman Catholic masses, a movement that defends abortion, and here's this, that boast in the fact that celebrities love them, and again, I'm going to quote directly from them, they boast that celebrities love them. Why? Quote, because we don't teach that book with Moses and stuff, end quote. Include the fact that Hillsong do not hold to the eternal security of the believer and many other points of sound orthodoxy, and listen to me, Westmont, it all adds up to something false. You know Bethel and Jesus culture? You hear them in many churches today in the radio, and maybe you're one that's wondered, why don't we play that stuff at Westmount? It's good. We're going to let Bill Johnson, their leader, their founder, tell you again, straight from his own words, his book, When Heaven Invades Earth. I quote, Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. Along those lines, he continues, Jesus laid aside his divinity as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father. End quote. Westmount, we spent almost three years in the Gospel of Mark learning what about Jesus? He is the Son of God. God in flesh come down. To deny the deity of Christ is false heretical teaching. And I ask you, Westmount Church, how can true worshipers that worship in spirit and truth align with that? You can't, 1 Corinthians 6. The reality is you can't. Not if, it can be worship. But it's not true worship. And that is the rub. There is a lot of worship today. We have no shortage of it. What have I told you over and over again? We were made to worship. And we love to worship. The problem is we do it to different things in the wrong ways. Beloved, know that Jesus' teaching here is echoed in the New Testament. This is nothing new. This is not just some isolated teaching of Jesus. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul gives the content of true worship. Listen carefully. Colossians 3.16, this is the heart. This is the spirit and truth. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. True worship, do you hear it there? What's the content? The true worship is the word of Christ. Do you see that? The word of Christ, and how are you to do that when you truly worship? You're to let that word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do you see the spirit and the truth together? That's what makes a true worshiper, taking in the word of Christ and letting it dwell richly. True worship also is about a right manner and a right approach to God. Listen to Hebrews 12, 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Two words we've just abandoned today, right? With reverence and offer our God is what? Leviticus 10, a consuming fire. Church, that is as prescribed in God's word. This is not Jason's thought or Westmount's thought. This is God's prescription for true worship. Defined by him, but not only defined. This is not just a, that would be nice if you can do it. Here's what you need to ascribe to, and if you can get there, that'd be great. Look at verse 24 for our final point, and a brief one. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
Jesus does not say those who worship him can do so in spirit and truth. Look at it. Jesus does not say those who worship him should do so in spirit and truth. And Jesus certainly doesn't say those who worship him are encouraged or have an option to do it this way. Because this is a more God-friendly way. No, Jesus says what? Look at it. Look at the text. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Beloved, that must is emphatic. It's emphasis. That's a command. And that is our mandate for true worship. Must means this way only. Must means there is no other way. True worship, if that is your desire, Jesus says, must be in spirit and truth. Must be in spirit and truth. There are a few millennia later Samaritans that still live in Samaria and Mount Gerizim. Every year for the Passover, they journey up to Mount Gerizim. And they take a lamb and they slaughter it. And they take the blood and they throw it on each other. And they chant and they sing. Worshiping God. Worshiping. They're still doing it. Because that's their way. That's what they know. It's according to their knowledge. They got the location right. And they're worshiping God. Millennia later. Millennia later. Westmount. That is passionate worship. Westmount, that's zealous worship, is it not? Zealous worship. Westmount, that's sincere worship. You, you want to laud them for that. Really? You're still taking lambs and you're still sprinkling yourself? That worship is many things, but it is not true worship. It's not true worship. It's a spectacle. It probably draws crowds, and it feels good maybe to them, but it is not true worship. And here it is as we end. God is not seeking that worship. Doesn't matter how passionate, sincere, zealous it is, He's not looking for that. How do we know? For those of you that have been tracking, I want to unburden you now. I did not skip over the end of verse 23. It's fittingly where we end. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God the Father is looking for what such people? People that will worship not traditionally, because that's what our ancestors did. Not geographically, because this is the place where we should. Not passively, without giving any thought to the words we sing. And not externally, because the rhythm makes me feel good. Westmount, God is seeking people that will worship him truly. True worship in spirit and truth. In spirit, that's whole life, whole soul engagement actively. In truth, that's according to the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, the inner being, true words, his words. Those are the true worshipers that the Father is seeking. And church, may we here at Westmount seek that type of worship as we sing to him together. Father, may we be true worshipers of you. Lord, help us, correct in our hearts, admonish us, rebuke us. Father, please collectively do what you need to do so that we worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we recognize we bring so much of ourself to worship. We seek so much of what we can get out of worship. But God, we want to repent of that and just give to you the worship you're due as a worship in our inner being, whole self, and worship that's true, true words, rightly aligned words based on the right gospel and the right character of Christ. So God, help us in this endeavor as we pray. As you seek true worshipers, Lord, may you find them here at Westmount Bible Chapel. We thank you in Christ's name.
Amen.